Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. That the congregation of Ephesus had lost their first love. So the concern was that they might repent and that they might have that love restored. Then in chapter 2, we went from the congregation of Ephesus to the congregation at Smyrna. No concerns in that congregation, except that that congregation was enduring a great deal of suffering. In fact, some have died for their faith. And many have endured slander because of their faith. And he just encourages them. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And then the third congregation he writes to is in Pergamum. This is a congregation that did not have their doctrine straight. And so they were giving in to the teaching of Balaam, as it is described in verse 14. Again, he challenges them, and he says that, uh, repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against you and bring judgment. The fourth church, or I should say the third church he writes to, is the church at Thyatira. And in that congregation... We're told that he saw their works, he saw their love in action, their faith, their service, their endurance. But they had given ground to a false prophet who had been encouraging them to be involved in idolatrous worship. He warns them about their falling into idolatry. And we spoke about that a few weeks ago. And then last week we looked at, or this week we're going to look at this congregation in Sardis. Sardis was a city about 50 miles east of Ephesus. Remember, all of these cities were located on a major route that was circular in nature on the western side of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. Ephesus was the main hub, the main port city from which all of the influences flowed into Asia Minor. North, about 25 miles, was the city of Smyrna. About 35, 40 miles north of that was Pergamum. About 35 or 25 miles southeast was Thyatira. And now another 30 miles, we come to Sardis. Sardis was a city that was up on the plateau of a hill, some 1,500 feet above the valley below. And this city, in its past, was a glorious city. It had lost much of its past accomplishments. It was a very wealthy city. They had found gold in this city. And archaeologists have uncovered all kinds of jewelry, especially in some of the sarcophaguses and coffins that uh, people were buried in with their jewels and with their jewelry. 
This was a very influential city at one time, but now in the first century, it lost much of its influence. Nevertheless, it was still a city of significance. There was a great library there. There was an amphitheater that was present. There was about 150, 175,000 people that lived in this city. When the letter is written, we read this in verse 1. And to the angel of the congregation in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Of course, in each one of these letters, a description of Messiah is given. This letter, we're told that he is the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. When you look at chapter 1 and reading in verse, looking at um, in verse 5 or so, We read grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. When we looked at that passage, we noted that seven spirits is a reference to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And of course, in the opening words of this letter, we have reference to the Spirit of God, reference to Messiah, reference to God the Father. Here, this is the one who is alongside the one who is the sevenfold fullness of the Spirit. That's why when we light the candles, we read Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Because here we're told that the Spirit of God and all of His fullness rested upon Messiah. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The fullness of the Spirit of God rests on Messiah. And so when, he write, when this letter is written, he's identified as that one who has the fullness of the Spirit of God. And not only is the one that has the fullness of the Spirit of God, but we're reminded he's the one that has the seven stars in his hand. When we look earlier in chapter 1, we are told in chapter 1, verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven congregations. He's the one who has in his hand, he's the one who is controlling those seven angels that are dispatched to these seven congregations. So he's the one who is full of the Spirit of God, and he's the one who has dispatched the angels to look over the congregations that are his. Remember, each one of these congregations belongs to Messiah. They are his congregations. Even as Paul writes in Corinthians, he's the head of each one of these churches, each one of these congregations. So he has in his hand, his right hand, these seven angels that are dispatched to watch over and to guide each of these congregations in the way the Lord wants them to go. In other words, he's the sovereign Lord of these congregations. They answer to him. And he's the one who has the fullness of the Spirit resting on him. Why this focus of the fullness of the Spirit? Because there was a serious problem in the congregation at Sardis. The words that we're about to read to Sardis are the most condemning of all the congregations that are written, perhaps with the exception of the letter written to the congregation at Laodicea. But what he writes about this congregation at Sardis is very concerning. So what does he write? He says, I know your works. This opening phrase is an interesting one. Each one of the letters we read of the knowledge of Messiah about the congregation. Look at chapter 2. To the congregation at Ephesus in verse 2, he says, I know your works. 
Look at chapter 2, verse 9, to the congregation at Smyrna. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Look at what he writes to the congregation at Pergamum in chapter 13. I know, verse 13, I know where you dwell. Look at what he writes to the congregation at Thyatira, verse 19. I know your works, your love, and your faith. And now to the congregation at Sardis, he says in chapter 3, I know your works. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3 to the congregation of Philadelphia, or verse 8. He says, I know your works. And then if you go down to verse 15 of chapter 3, he says to the congregation at Laodicea, I know your works. So Messiah knows everything that's going on in the congregation and in the hearts and lives of each individual that makes up the congregation. And as he looks at this congregation, as he looks at the individuals associated with it, he says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And that's why the opening verse focuses on the fact that the Spirit of God rests in fullness over Messiah. Because what the congregation at Sardis is lacking is the work of the Spirit of God in fullness. The Spirit of God is present, but in order for the Spirit of God to work to the degree to which he wants to work, we have to be open vessels for him. We have to be open to his leading, to his guidance, and to his love, and to his mercy, to his grace. We have to be ready to repent, ready to be transformed, ready to be changed. If the fullness of the Spirit of God is going to rest upon us as he rests upon Messiah, and as he desires to rest upon the congregation, we have to come to him and devote ourselves to the Spirit of God and to allow the Holy Spirit to have his way with us. And so when Messiah is introduced to this congregation, he introduces himself as one who has the fullness of the Spirit resting upon him. And now this congregation needs the fullness of the Spirit resting upon it if it is to be alive and not dead. When people looked at this congregation, when they reflected on this congregation, they said it has a reputation of life, but it has no life in it. They were doing things for sure, because look what he goes on to say. He says, strengthen what remains. There's something going on. There's a little something. It needs to be stirred up, needs to be strengthened, he's saying. And in order for it to be strengthened, he tells them a number of things they need to do. The first thing he tells them, five things. The first thing he tells them is that they need to wake up. They need to come to grips with where they are in reality. They need to turn their hearts to the reality of God's presence. They need to wake up to him. Not just go through the motions of whatever it is they're doing. And they're doing some good things, it would appear, because he tells them to strengthen those things. So the things he's telling them to strengthen are good things that they're doing. But the things that they are doing, they're doing evidently in their own strength rather than the power of the Spirit. They're doing it in order to be seen for what it is that they're doing rather to simply allow God to see what they're doing so that others are benefited and God is glorified. Remember what Yeshua says in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works. Why? So that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven and not you. This congregation evidently was doing things, but the things they were doing was bringing uh, acknowledgement to themselves because they had a reputation. But it wasn't drawing attention to God because it wasn't being fueled by the work of the Spirit, and it wasn't being done for His honor and for His glory. So the first thing Messiah says is, they need to wake up. 
And then he says to wake up and strengthen what remains. Now, whenever I hear that verse, whenever I hear that phrase, I can't help but think of this song. If you're a Bob Dylan fan, you cannot help but think of this song when you read those words. Because in 1979, what is that, 40 some odd years now almost, 40 years? He wrote, uh, he recorded his album, you know, um, A Slow Train Coming, right? Which won a Grammy Award. Actually won two. And by the way, a new Dylan album just came out. And this new Dylan album, you have to get. I have nothing to do with, with it. So I'm just, t- you have to get it. Because it's all his live recordings of all his Christian stuff that he did in 1979, 80, 81, 82. So they put it all together and you can hear some of the things he says when he, when he you know, between songs, when he speaks to the audience. He talks about his faith and he talks about challenging, he challenges them in their own faith and in terms of walking in the spirit of the Lord. Also, there are some albums, songs that have not been recorded for the first time they're on there and they're all songs about the Lord. They're all about the Lord. And one of the songs he wrote, now what did we just read here in Revelation? So that you realize one of the reasons Dylan is so wonderful and well acknowledged is because so many of his lyrics are not his. They're God's lyrics, you know. You can't go wrong with those, right? But in Revelation chapter 3, we have these words, right? Wake up, strengthen what remains. So here's a song he wrote that was, in, that was entitled, um, When You're Gonna Wake Up. So it starts out, God don't make no promises that he don't keep. You got some big dreams, but in order to dream, you gotta still be asleep. So when you're gonna wake up? When are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up and strengthen the things that remain? Yeah, this is a great, what a great line, right? When you first listen, you say, what a cool line, but that's the Bible. Then he says this. This is just, you know, this is kind of dates things, but it's still kind of neat. He says, counterfeit philosophies have polluted all of your thoughts. Karl Marx has got you by the throat. Certainly, you go on campuses today. I mean, Columbia, Berkeley, and all those. Right? Karl Marx has got you by the throat. Henry Kissinger's got you tied up into knots. When are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up and strengthen the things that remain? You got innocent men in jail. Your insane asylums are full. You got unrighteous doctors dealing drugs that'll never cure your ills. When are you going to wake up? When are, you going to wake up? when are you going to wake up and strengthen what remains? I'm not going to go on through all this. It's a rather lengthy song, but listen to this. Do you ever wonder just what God requires? Do you think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desires? When are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up and strengthen the things that remain? Then he says this. This is how the song ends. There's a man on a cross, and he's been crucified. Do you have any idea why or for who he died? When are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up and strengthen the things that remain? What a great song, you know? Uh, Because I remember when I was a young believer, we used to pray, we used to talk about this very thing. 
Is God just an errand boy that we just pray and we say, how come you haven't provided me with this? How come you haven't answered this? How come, is he just an errand boy to satisfy our, I love this phrase too, our wandering desires, you know? What we ask for now, five minutes later, we're thinking about something else, you know? But he's not that. He put his son up on the cross. Why? Because we have a sin problem. And for who? For all of us, right? And when are we going to wake up to realize what God has done for us that we would strengthen what remains, that we would bring glory and honor to him? Well, this is what the letter is saying. Wake up, strengthen what remains, and is about to die. He goes on to say, For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now, there's another reason why this phrase, wake up, to the people of Sardis, the congregation of Sardis is so significant. You know, Sardis, as I said, was up on a hill 1,500 feet above the valley below. If you've ever gone to Masada, that's 1,500 feet above the Dead Sea. So it's pretty high up there. And at Sardis, it had three sheer cliffs on its north, east, and west sides. No one could ever penetrate this city unless you attacked from the south. And of course, the defenders put all their troops on the south side, and there's no other way you'd scale those walls in order to attempt to take the city. But the city fell twice in its history. It fell when it was the kingdom of Lydia. It had fallen to Cyrus. It was around 540, 546, I think is the exact date. Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, had moved his troops from the east had come into Asia Minor, and he was by, I think it's called the Halys River, on the other side of the kingdom of Lydia. And the, the capital of the kingdom of Lydia was in Sardis. And so the king of Lydia, residing in Sardis, had inquired of the Delphic oracle, you know, one of these prophets among the temples, and went to the Delphic Oracle and had asked whether or not an attack should be made on Cyrus to stop his uh, insurgents into his kingdom. And the Delphic Oracle responded by saying, if an army crosses the river, an empire will be destroyed. Of course, when the Delphic Oracle always responds, the answer could be either way, right? So the king took it as saying, I should take my troops and attack. So he attacked Cyrus. Of course, Cyrus was victorious. His troops had to retreat back to Sardis. They retreat back to Sardis and they're up 1,500 feet in the city. And remember, the three sides of it are sheer cliffs. One side, the south side, was where they'd have to attack. So the king put all of his troops there facing the south side. Cyrus took his troops, surrounded the hill, surrounded this rise. And during the course of one afternoon, one of his troops circling around the side of the hill noticed that a Sardi soldier had dropped his helmet on one of the sides where it had a sheer cliff. And he climbed down to get the helmet and to go back up. So the soldier went to his commanding officer. He said, I think I found a way to get into the city. 
And so the commanding officer said, take some troops with you and go. So at night, they scaled the side of the cliff. They got to the top. Nobody was there. They went to the gates, opened the gates. Cyrus with his troops came into the gates and destroyed the city of of Sardis. And of course, Persia went on to dominate until the Greek Empire. What's interesting is about 400 years later, under the leadership of Antiochus Epiphanes, remember the Maccabees fought him, the Greco-Syrian leader in the north. Well, he moved his troops into Asia Minor in order to expand his empire in the north. Came up to Sardis. The troops were encamped up on the top of the hill. And again, their troops had scaled the wall, opened the gates for Antiochus, and the city fell a second time. Why? Because the leadership was not vigilant regarding the defense of the city. They assumed that no one could get up those cliffs, and they didn't post a lookout. So when Yeshua tells the congregation, wake up, he's telling them, be vigilant about your spiritual life. Because if you're not, there's going to be those sneaking up the side that you're not watchful of. There's going to be sin that is going to be creeping up that ledge and will overtake you and take the city and destroy the inhabitants that are therein. We need to wake up, be vigilant about the reality of our walk with the Lord and make sure that the fullness of the Spirit is resting upon us and that we are seeking to follow him, to walk in his ways and to be devoted to him. So Yeshua tells them, number one, we need to wake up. He says, number two, look at verse, verse three. He says, remember then what you received and heard. What was it that they received? They received the gospel. They received the good news. They had heard the good news. They received it. And now he's telling them, you need to wake up, remember who you are, and to live your life in light of its truths. Remember what you received and what you heard. Be responsive to God's revelation to you and your commitment to him. That's what he's telling this congregation. Third thing he tells them, he says, number one, wake up. Be aware of the struggle that is or the danger that is encroaching upon you. Number two, he says, remember what you receive, the good news, life eternal, what you have heard. And he tells them, number three, keep it, treasure it, obey it, walk in light of it, be engaged in the spiritual disciplines by virtue or by means of the Spirit of God that you do not lose what we have received. So if we're readers of Scripture, make sure we're reading not just You know, on a surface level, oh, I did my duty today. We put the Bible down and we feel like we've done what we're supposed to do. No, you remember what it was like when we first knew the Lord and he came into our lives? We couldn't get enough of the word of God. It wasn't enough just to get up five minutes early, read a verse and go on to work or whatever it is that we're doing. We needed to spend a great deal of time with him. Remember what it was like when we went into those congregations or into our churches and we worshiped the Lord. We looked to get the front seat. We looked to raise our hands. We looked to shout out in, with, you know, with, with great gusto to the glory of God so that everyone around us would hear. When we prayed, we sought 
to bring our needs before the Lord. We were concerned with what was going on in other people's lives. We didn't just go through the motions. It was of depth and of concern to us. And so Yeshua is telling them, listen, remember what you received and heard and what you did. Keep it. Keep going at it. Strengthen what remains. Build on what it is. Nurture what has gone on. And then he says, and keep it. And then he says, and repent. Turn from where we've been and turn toward God. This week, when when Richard and I met, we talked about the nature of repentance and conversion. Repentance is agreeing with God that such and such is true. And conversion is turning from it and going in a new direction. To Jewish people, converting seems to indicate that we cease to be Jewish. That's why we we don't like the word so much. When we talk about converting, it means, oh, we're no longer Jews. No, that's not what conversion means. It means we go in a new direction. The old direction is the way that has led to death. The new direction is what leads to life. And so Yeshua is saying, look, repent. Agree with God that a change is needed and turn toward that which will enable us to make the change that God would have us to make. And so he says, wake up, strengthen what remains, for I found your works for, uh, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. And then he says a second time, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. You know, Yeshua says this about his second coming, right? You can see this in Matthew chapter 24. I come like a thief in the night. If the person wasn't ready, the thief breaks into the house. That's what it's going to be like when I come. By the way, Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. He says, the Lord, when he comes, will come like a thief in the night when we least expect him to come. Here he's saying, in a similar way, look, you need to change your ways. You need to come to grips because you are dead. You think you are alive. Strengthen what remains. If that does not happen, I'm going to come at a time you do not expect and judgment is going to hit. Now, this is what he says, but he says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. There are still some people who have not soiled their garments. There are still some that are faithful. So it wasn't yet beyond the scope of repair. That's the wonderful thing about the Lord. No one ever gets so far away from God that he cannot do something with them to retrieve that individual or that congregation back unto himself. There's still a few. And I still am reaching out. This is the marvelous thing about grace. You know, Peter says the same thing. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's always reaching out. And even here, he continues to reach out, even though he says, you have a reputation that you're alive, but you are dead. And he says, but look, I'm still reaching out. You need to respond. And this is what he tells them. If you respond, he says, if we turn, if we are ones who are truly uh, men and women of God, he says, the one who uh, conquers, well, let me go back. He says, Uh, They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. I love this expression. They will walk 
with me. That comes up at the very beginning of the Bible, doesn't it? In Genesis, it says that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He walked with them. And one of my favorite statements is found in Genesis 5, where Enoch is, we're told, he walked with God and God took him for he was not. And as I've said many a time, it was Stephen Brown, who at the time was pastor of the Presbyterian Church in Key Biscayne, Florida. He would reflect on that passage and he would say, it's sort of like God and Enoch were walking together and God has his hand over Enoch's shoulder. And over time, he lived to be about 300, one of the younger ones in the early part of Genesis. They walked for a while and he says, you know... God is speaking to Enoch. You know, Enoch, we've walked together some 300 years. And we're now a lot closer to my house than we are to your house. Why don't you come on over to my house? And God took him and he was not. I love that, that, that uh, sort of imagery, you know. You're walking with God and then God says, look, we've come a long way together. Why don't we just call it a day and why don't you come on home, you know. And so the Lord says here, Those who've not soiled their garments, they're going to walk with me. And this is what we read in Genesis. Adam walked with the Lord. Enoch walked with the Lord. You read in in Revelation chapter 14, it says of the 144,000, they followed the lamb wherever he went. They walked with him. They didn't run with him. They didn't jot. They walked with him. A casual movement of one place to the other. God took them gently from point A to point B. Whatever, wherever God is taking us in our life, he gently accompanies us. He walks with us. He never leaves us nor forsake us. And he's always with us. And so the Lord says, they will walk with me. But he says, they will walk with me in white. You know what's interesting? Seven times, number seven is a very prominent number in the book of Revelation, seven times it makes reference to the fact that the redeemed will walk with the Lord with white garments. Let me show this to you. If you look at chapter three, right, we just saw it here. He says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Now, if you look at chapter three, you go further down when he speaks to the last congregation at Laodicea, He doesn't have a good word for them, but he says to them, uh, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may clothe yourself. Uh, so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness and not be seen. And then he says, um, if you look at verse 18, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness. Notice again, he tells him about putting on white garments. If you look at chapter 4, where we have the imagery of John in the throne room of God. And he sees around the throne, verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, look at this, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. When you get to chapter 6, you read about Messiah opening the various seals on the scroll. When you get to the fifth seal, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they bore. 
They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Again, the redeemed given a white robe. If you look at chapter 7, we read in verse 9 of the 144,000, and then it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples, languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. And then if you look down in chapter 7, around verse 13, it says, One of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And here's the key phrase. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The white robe speaks of God's declaring of them righteous. And that they are forgiven of their sin. And because of what Messiah has done in giving his life, they have white robes. They're forgiven and they stand redeemed before the Lord. And the last verse, you don't have to turn there or or slide there, look there on your, your mobile device. But if you look at Revelation chapter 19, when Messiah returns... It says that his eyes were like a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems. He has a name written, no one else knows but he himself. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Verse 14, in the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. So when the Lord here, back to Revelation chapter 3, says, the one who conquers, the one who knows the Lord, the one who's repented and has sought to walk with him as such, and to see life come forth through the fullness of the Spirit, he says they'll be clothed in white garments. We'll stand before the Lord completely justified, declared righteous. In other words, it's a statement about the security of the believer. We will be with him for all of eternity. And to emphasize that security, look at the second thing he says. Our names will never be blotted out of the book of life. Now, running out of time, but the book of life is made reference to in Exodus chapter 32, where you have the issue of the golden calf. And Moses stands up and he says, look, if you would bring the, you know, not put the judgment upon Israel, but put the judgment on me, blot me out of the book. And of course, he's referring to the book of life. You can see it in Psalm 68. I'm going to say around verse 29, 28 or so. Or maybe it's Psalm 69, verse 28. David writes of his enemies, and he says, may their names be blotted out of the book of the living. And then here you see in the book of Revelation, where the Lord says, our names would not be blotted out of the book of life. And by the way, it's the strongest in the Greek, ume. It will never, ever, under any circumstances, be blotted out of the book of life. And so this is a statement about the security that the believer has in the Lord. And then lastly, he says, and this to me, I think, is one of the most amazing statements in this whole section. But he says, not only this, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, if you were to look in Matthew chapter 10, I'm going to say around verse 30, 32 or so. 
Messiah says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my father. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. Here he makes the confession, he makes the statement that I will confess you before my father. Now this is what I thought. It's one thing for us to confess the Lord before one another. To acknowledge our devotion to the Lord before one another. It's one thing to acknowledge, to confess Messiah as Lord and Savior. To those who don't know, you know, we're confessing him. It's another thing for the Lord to confess us before the Father. You know, it's one thing for me to speak to someone and say, Hey, you know, the Lord loves you and Yeshua died for you. It's another thing for Yeshua to say to the Father, Hey, you know, this guy over here, Gary, I know, don't think too deeply about him, but don't reflect on all of his life. But this one here named Gary, he's mine. You know, he's confessing me before the Father. He confesses you before the Father. It's a tribute to confess the Lord before others. There is no greater privilege than to talk about our Lord to another, whether it's you or I or someone that's a stranger out there. But then to think that the Lord's going to talk about you to the Father is absolutely unbelievable. That he's going to talk about us and how we are redeemed by him. I will confess you before my father make sure your faith is real is what this letter is saying make sure all your religiosity is genuine otherwise you are dead in your trespasses and sins oh you may have a reputation of being alive you may think you are alive others may think you are alive but Messiah says I know everything and I'm telling you You are dead unless you truly have given your life to me. And if you've truly given your life to me, then what you will do will truly honor me before others. And if it's so, one day you will walk with me. Not just sort of distantly, but you will walk with me. And you will be arrayed in white like I am. And I will be proud to confess you before my Father. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom of my Father that has been prepared for you. And all it takes is to receive him into our heart and to walk with him day by day, moment by moment. Well, let's pray. While I'm praying, the worship team can come on up. The ushers can get ready. Father, we thank you for this marvelous word to a church that was dead. Lord, it raises the question for us to ask ourselves two big questions. Where is our congregation at? Beth Ariel, are we dead or alive? May we look deeply and honestly about who we are as a congregation and strengthen the things that remain. And the second question we need to ask is, where do I stand personally and individually? Am I dead or am I alive to you? And if I am, I need to strengthen the things that remain, that you, Lord, would be glorified 
and that I might be blessed. And so, Father, I pray that each and every heart here and each and every heart that may be listening online even at this moment or might listen at a later time, I pray, Lord, that they might think deeply and honestly about their relationship with you. Father, may we truly be ones where there is life. And may we allow your spirit to have his full way with us, for that is the only way life comes. We must be born again. And we are born by virtue of the spirit of God, who takes that which is dead and trespasses and sins and makes us alive unto you. We bless you, Lord, and help us, each and every one, that we would be ones that live a genuine life unto you. For we pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.